I always wanted to get on Fallon. And then there was this mandate that you either had to be making your TV debut or you needed to be basically like Jerry Seinfeld. And so I couldn't get on. I was like, damn, I've already done Letterman. I've done other TV shows. Uh, I can't get on. And then finally I talked to a friend of mine and they're like, well, have you ever done The Secret? And I was like, that hokey bullshit where you where you wish for something in the universe yeah. and then it comes true magically. No, I have not done that. So uh, next thing I know, like I'm seeing the secret book everywhere and I'm like, ah, the secret's after me. So finally, instead of reading the book, I watched the documentary on YouTube. Okay. And uh, and there's this really hokey part in the middle of it where it goes, now's where you pause this documentary and you wish for something unreasonable. And so I was like, I want, I want to be at the stand. I want Jimmy Fallon to show up. And then I want to be invited onto a show. And then I want to get a standing ovation. Is that unreasonable enough? And like, literally, I said those words. Welcome to the Underground Comedy Podcast with Sean Joyce. For more information about our live shows, check out undergroundcomedydc.com. Hey, what's up? Thanks for checking us out. This weekend, we got our first Big Hunt debut of the year. Ron Taylor will be coming all the way from Los Angeles to headline. Ron's a funny young comic who's a regular at the Comedy Store in LA. I'm really looking forward to seeing his shows. I think they're going to be good. You can get tickets on the website. Our guest today is Pete Lee. Pete is a funny comic who is originally from Wisconsin and has appeared on Comedy Central and Last Comic Standing. In this episode, Pete explains how after years of doing stand-up and being on TV, he manifested a Tonight Show audition, booking, and standing ovation. He has now been on The Tonight Show four times in the past two years, and his clips have been viewed millions of times, allowing him to tour the country doing stand-up. How long have you been with your girlfriend? We've been together for, it's coming up, uh, gosh, it's like, it's like six or seven months okay pretty pretty new yeah we we met one another on an airplane and uh i was i was um i was flying to go see nikki glazer um it's uh nikki and i have told it told the story on her radio show so i was uh, like kind of a quick story on it um i i was nikki's first love and (laughs) nikki and i were dating like very close to like when when I first met my now ex-wife uh-huh. there's that like kind of gray area where you're like what's going to happen and um and so I was kind of dating the both of them and then I chose my now ex-wife over Nikki nice broke her heart uh I I take full responsibility for being a douchebag uh and breaking up with her and um Nikki didn't speak to me for 10 years. Wow. Yeah, 10 years. And Whoa. I mean, in that time, and I had promised my ex, she was like, just don't, you know, I don't want you to have a friendship with her. So I never made up with yeah, her. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I honored the promise to my now ex-wife, but then uh, I also should have just, I should have betrayed that and tied up those loose ends and said, yeah. a bu- and I should have done that. But when I got divorced, I reached out to Nikki and I was like, hey, uh, can we talk? And she was like, no, absolutely not. And I mean, th- there were times where I would be at VH1 shooting best week ever. Nikki would be shooting promos for Nikki and Sarah on yeah, MTV yeah. and we'd be sharing a makeup room and I'd be like, Hey, Hey Nikki. And she'd be like, no, like, no. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I never realized, uh, what, uh, like th- there were two things that went on. Um, one, you know, like I, I, we fell in love with each other. Like I, it was like the bachelor. Like I, I was in love with two women at the same time and had to choose. Okay. And, um, so that was a big thing. Like I, 
I basically fell in love with her, talked her into falling in love with me, mm -hmm. and then and then abandoned her, which is fucking awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then also, it turns out that I basically broke up with her on her birthday, mm. and I didn't know it was her birthday. Like wow. that's how new everything was. And so her and I basically we got together on her birthday and talked, and we were at the stand. We had a we had a show at the stand together in New York. We were at the back comics table. We were like talking. And it was like very emotional. Like other comics would come and sit down and be like, no. Right, right. Like, oh, I can't be around. What the fuck is this energy? Yeah, yeah. And her and I made up with one another. Uh, at the time, I was dating uh, another girl. And I basically told Nikki, like, hey, I can't, we can't really be friends, you know, because it's unfair to this other girl. And so um, Nikki and I, you know, we would just kind of see each other. And, um, and then once the things ended with this girl and I, Nikki was like, hey, maybe like maybe we should try to hook up like we should she's like i'm <laughs> okay. single now she's like i am newly single she's like you're single okay we should totally hook up so i get on an airplane and i head to california and on the airplane i met my now girlfriend wow yeah that's really fucked up dude yeah who by the way has the same name as my ex-wife which wow. is insane and um and so uh i landed and you know nikki and i at this point were like we're starting this friendship and I wanted it to have a base of honesty. And I was like, I was like, yeah, on the plane, I met this girl and, um, she was really cool. We had a great talk and she's like, show me a picture of her. So I showed her, um, I showed her Jamie's Instagram and she was like, she literally goes, why? Well, I think you're going to marry her. And I go, why? And she goes, cause you both have bird faces. She goes, you look alike. She goes, people that look alike, marry each other. It's a narcissistic thing where you're like, you're so beautiful. How are you so beautiful? It's cause you look like me. That's and, funny. Um, and so, uh, I just kept in touch via Instagram with, um, you know, with my now girlfriend for months, like months and months and months. And, uh, I would go down like Nikki and I ended up not hooking up that weekend. We just like bonded and there was so much scar tissue there that if somebody is, is the person when, that when they walk into a room, your body goes, Oh God, you know, like I'm in trouble. This is bad. Uh -huh. You can't have sex. Like you're not going to have sex with that person unless you're demented and so why do you have that re that reaction do you think um i think that it was we were enemies like we were just for so long we were enemies for so long and now it's been it's been about two years since we've been friends mm -hmm. um you know now or i guess a year and a half ish or so but now um now when nikki walks into a room i get happy like I, sure. i'm elated um <laughs> the you know Nikki always comes over to my apartment in, in LA and she literally hops the balcony and then knocks on the door. And I get so happy when she does that. Yeah. And, um, but at that point, you know, we were hanging out at the Roosevelt hotel and it was like, will we, won't we? And I was like, Nikki, I just got to level with you. I feel terrified of you still. And I think like, maybe we could just talk and like heal this whole thing yeah. and, and order room service. And we also were smoking weed and we weren't drinking which like mm -hmm. that's a big thing i think if whiskey would have been involved yeah we would have hooked up but like weed makes you go like why would why would we stick our tongues in each other's mouths That'd it does take the edge off yeah 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 for sure it tones it down a lot it it totally does and um but yeah then uh i started dating other girls and nikki was kind of dating a little bit and i'd go on a date and i'd call her and tell her about it and vice versa and the whole time that i was single i just wasn't really connecting with anyone i just didn't i i didn't like anyone i i don't know like i i was like you know even i'd have sex 
and I was like, I've never had that in my life where I had sex. How long? Uh, it was months. Like, yeah, I, I'm not sure how many months, but it was months of that. And then Nikki kept saying, what about plain girl? What about that girl you went on a plane? And, uh, so finally plain girl and I were in the same city as one another and we got together and, uh, yeah, it was like, as soon as she walked into the room, I was like, Oh my God, that's yeah, like, that's the person that I love. Like it was, it was instant, like a dumb rom-com or something. Yeah. And you really jumped in starting a podcast together <laughs> immediately. Yeah, we did. That's a big commitment. Yeah, we did. And, um, and yeah, she's, and she's so cool. And it was funny cause, um, my friend Mehran Kagani, who's a comedian in New York, uh, he's Iranian and gay and, um, uh, he, uh, he's very flamboyant and, mm-hmm. He he was like, I was like, yeah, I love this girl. I think I'm gonna move to California for her. And he's like, he's like, whoa, pump the brakes, sister. You're moving at lesbian speed. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> put the moving truck in park and come to your senses. And then two weeks later, Jamie was in. She was in New York, and Mayron met her. And he's like, he's like, take the moving truck out of park, put mm-hmm. it in drive, move into her, move to California. She's gonna get away, and you're gonna lose her. She's better than you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you gotta make the move when someone's better than you. That's for sure. Yeah, she's way better than me. <laughs> she, she really is. She's, she's awesome. And um, and you moved just for her. I moved just for her, and it's been kind of crazy because I moved for her literally, and then. Ever since I moved to LA, like everything career-wise is going way better. Which, yeah, um, I, like sidebar with Nikki, I kind of talked Nikki into moving to New York. I wasn't the solo factor. There were a lot of a lot of comedians that were saying like, "You you're working on your Netflix special. You need to move here. Right. It's going to help your stand up. She can do her radio show there later." But it it was really nice when Nikki and I lived in the same city because we got to pal around. You know, almost every night that yeah. we were home, and and then. Um, we had lunch after Nikki's radio show one day and I was like, yeah, I'm, I've been thinking about, you know, Jamie's going to move here. She's going to move to New York. And Nikki was like, no, she's like, I know that you fucking talked me into moving to New York, but she's like, you need to go to LA. She goes, you've been in entertainment for 20 years and you've never lived there and you've never experienced it and you're afraid and you should move there for love, but it's going to be great for your career. So how has it helped you career wise being out there? it's been insane. Like I, um, I signed with CAA before Mm -hmm. I moved out there. Uh, and then my, was that the first time you had an agent? That's the first time that I had like a real agent. Okay. Um, I had had agents in New York. Um, I I had an, I had an agency in New York that was, you know, I don't want to not call them a real agency, but they didn't have a lot of pull where if they were like, believe in this guy, you know, like they, they legit believed in me. But I think that when they told people to believe in me, the people were like, well, we don't believe you. Right. Um, and, uh, but I, I have another story with my agent. So he was a, uh, his name's Andy, Andy, I'll just name him. His name's Andy Farrag. He's the fucking Mm -hmm. best, uh, and he brought me, he was on the student activities board at University of South Carolina. Okay. And he brought uh, me to his school all four years to host this comedy competition. Okay. And it was just really fun. And then every year, you know, he had like no budget. So he would take me out to Taco Bell. And so his senior year, he takes me to the dumb Taco Bell food court. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I was like, what do you want to do for a living, Andy? And he goes, he goes, I'm going to move to LA. I'm going to become an agent. And I'm going to be your agent. And I was like, all right, that already sounds like an agent. Yeah, I, I yeah. believe in you. So um, I was like, I don't know what's going to happen with him. So six months later, he 
uh, I get a text from him. He's like, dude, I'm, I'm in LA. I'm sleeping on couches. I, you know, he's like, I shipped my car out here with all my clothes in it and I'm just, I'm doing this. And I was like, good luck, man. And then, uh, I ran into him at the comedy store about six months later and he's like, dude, I got a job at CAA. I'm in the mailroom. And I was like, good for you. Holy crap. Yeah. And, uh, so he goes on Amazon, he buys a little mail cart for himself. He do instead of just putting the mail in the slots, he does mm. the like delivering the mail around to the company kind of a thing. Uh-huh. Of course, everybody in the company falls in love with him. Sure. Uh, he, the whole time he's like, you guys got to sign Pete Lee. And they're like, fuck you mail guy. Yeah, right, right. And, um, and then he becomes a junior agent and he's still like Pete Lee, Pete Lee. And they're like, look, dude, he doesn't have a lot of followers online. He doesn't have you know there's no signing story they always call it like a signing story uh where it's like you know here's the thing that got you to the level where you know people will come see you well and then i got on i get on fallon and then my second thing got eight million views and then apparently the second time you're on fallon the second time i was on fallon and then apparently the wives of one of the high up people at ca was like this guy's great he's got this joke about dresses with pockets right like i was like that's the fucking guy that andy's been telling us about and so they were like, get him in here. So I flew to LA. Um, I was dating my girlfriend at the time. And so like, I, I was like, cool, I get to hang out with you. Right, right. I had meetings with them. They assembled a team. And uh, and then probably like a month after that, that was when I had that lunch with Nikki. And, and Nikki was like, you got to go. You got to yeah. have to get out there. Because there's almost no sense in having a West Coast team if you're going to be in New York. Because they can really help you with their contacts right. out there. and. So then Andy, uh, you know, he became a full-fledged agent at CAA. Then he he moved over to Brillstein to be a manager. Okay. And then um, he went over there, and so I uh, I followed him over there. And so now I'm represented by Brillstein and CAA. That's and, good. Um, and it's been crazy because the, the combination between having their clout and then just going to shows in L.A. where there's just somebody from ABC, Disney, or, you know, whatever it is in the crowd – that sees you do well and then they give you their card and then I tell Andy and then they set up a meeting and I have a general meeting and um, it's it's been crazy how like the industry has really I've become tapped into it and now I'm like I'm on like the one yard line of selling a sitcom right now right just from a few months out there yeah and um, you know it it helped um, apparently Jimmy Fallon sent an email to somebody high up at NBC with like my YouTube link being like, Hey, this guy's really great. And he, that was before you had been on the tonight show. That was, um, that was after, um, the story I've been, I guess I've been telling a bunch of stories, but that's appropriate for podcasts, but (laughs) sure. Sure. Um, I like, I never, I'm usually the person that listens and you know, uh, being a podcaster, like I'm more comfortable listening than talking, but I'm like, I'm always, whenever I'm talking a lot or I'm like, am I talking too much? But that's appropriate for a podcast. That's what we're doing. <laughs> that's what we're doing. Um, yeah, the the story of how I got on Jimmy Fallon was um, I was on this show called uh, Greatest Ever on True TV mm-hmm. that like, uh, it was kind of weird because a lot of people watched it, but we got paid like 500 bucks a week. Yeah. And it wasn't, it, I was a writer and a cast member and it wasn't really going anywhere. And I always wanted to get on Fallon, like ever since he, like the first booker of Fallon, like booked me and I was in the little Netflix queue of people who were going to be there. And then he left to be the booker of James Corden and I was like, shit. And then, um, there was this mandate that, 
on Fallon, you either had to be making your TV debut or you needed to be basically like Jerry Seinfeld. Okay. And, uh, and so I couldn't get on. I was like, damn, I've already done Letterman. I've done other TV shows. Uh, I can't get on. And then finally I talked to a friend of mine and they're like, well, have you ever done the secret? And I was like that hokey bullshit where you, where you wish for something in the universe and then it comes true magically. No, I have not done that. And right. So, uh, next thing I know, like I'm seeing the secret book everywhere and I'm like, ah, the secret's after me. So finally, instead of reading the book, I watched the documentary on YouTube. Okay. And, uh, and there's this really hokey part in the middle where it goes, now's where you pause this documentary and you wish for something unreasonable. And so I was like, all right, I remember what happened to Nate Bargatze when, uh, he was just performing at the stand and Fallon just showed up one night cause right. he, you know, didn't want to go home yet. He sees Nate Bargatze. Next thing Nate Bargatze knows, he's, you know, Fallon is like in his living room writing the sitcom. Or that's, that's probably not even the true part of the story, but like that's the lore of right, it. Right, right, right. And so I was like, I want, I want to be at the stand. I want Jimmy Fallon to show up. Oh, real? Wow. And, you really wished the thing that happened. Yeah. I was like, I want this to happen. And then I want to be invited onto a show. And then I want to get a standing ovation. Is that unreasonable enough? And like literally, I said those words. And um, so three, Three days later, I get an email that says, hey, you have a Tonight Show showcase. And I was like, oh, the secret is real. Yeah. Like, the secret's real. And so um, I'm standing at the bar. I was talking to this girl that I was dating at the time. And then two of my friends kind of were walking by. That I know that they know Jimmy. And they had this smirk on their face like, you don't know who's behind us. And then the next person is Jimmy Fallon. Wow. And it was, it was like, This hey. is before you went up. This is before I went up. And yeah, yeah. so like you're already nervous to do a Tonight Show showcase. Sure. And then like seeing him, my heart was fucking pounding. And um, and just immediately like like he was like, oh, hey, man, blah, 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 blah. And like the first thing I said to Jimmy was I, I go, oh, my God, the secret is real. Like, what, like could you imagine if I met you sure. and I was like, the secret is real? Yeah. So he laughed and was like, I don't know what that's about. But I've told him about what that means since then. And I went downstairs and I was doing the show and I have a joke where I say, I never want to offend anyone. Like the other day, this guy sneezed and I want to say, bless you. But instead I said, happy holidays. And <laughs> Jimmy stood up and clapped his hands and goes, yes, I'd love this guy. And I was, you know, you, you're in that, that crossroads of like, do I interact right. or do I keep going or what? So I, I go, thank you, sir. Or J- I don't know what to call you. And, uh, Jimmy, whatever. And I go, uh, I, I want to say I love your Tonight Show, but instead I go, I love your impulse control. And the crowd <laughs> laughed really hard. Yeah, and then yeah. I kept going with my set. I finished. And then right afterwards, the you know the producers invited me on the show. And, wow. and, uh, and then I went on the show and I got a standing ovation. And it was like, I, and the funny, the dumbest thing about all that is that in terms of like the secret, I don't wish for things all the time. Like I... I, I don't want to be greedy, but right. that's the, another part of the secret is they're like, be greedy. You're supposed to keep wishing? Unlimited wishes. You yeah. got unlimited wishes? Unlimited wishes. That's and you didn't even it. try a second one after the first one? The first one worked so perfectly. <laughs> the first one was so good. Wow, and I think it seems like you should give it another shot. I think I should, uh, yeah, I think I should watch the secret documentar- documentary and pause it at that part. I don't even think you have to do that. You just have to just wish randomly, I think. You would. You know better than me, I think. You 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 nailed it the first time. I would do the exact. I'd watch it again. I'd do the exact same thing yeah. over again. And uh, then you could at least, uh, if you don't get it, you can forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of keep thinking about whether you should be wishing whether for I things or not. Should be making wishes. But if it happens again, I mean, 
it's just going to be one more uh, step in your career. Yeah. Well, I mean, now I'm pitching the sitcoms and stuff, and um, it looks like I have a production company and a network interested in one of my ideas. And I have on the sixth, I have to fly to New York to meet with the. Uh, there's like I won't say who it is, but there's like a a big name person who's a fan of mine that's not Jimmy Fallon mm-hmm. that is somebody that I would have never in my wildest dreams been like that person in my corner. No, it's um uh, like uh, it n- not an actor, but Industry it's person? a person, a TV personality that um is like sweet and adorable and like I would have just never imagined that that okay. like person would be going like hey let's make something but yeah wow that person has a certain amount of sitcoms that they can sell per year and they're like this seems good and i i never feel worthy of that but i've been reading a lot of scripts lately because my my agents send me scripts and so you know i've been reading like five scripts a week and it's crazy how a lot of it is recycled garbage. Yeah. Um, I remember people asking Seinfeld, like, how did you make such a good sitcom? And he's like, I just decided I would make something that was funny to me. Yeah. And I can't believe how many, you know, everybody's on Instagram going like, you need to unfollow fuck Jerry, you know, cause he steals people's jokes. Like, I can't believe how many sitcom scripts that I've written by people that are major sitcom writers yeah that like there's four or five of my friends stolen jokes in them oh yeah um they're just they're they're notorious and they're they're huge thieves and um it's pretty disgusting yeah i mean it's it's inevitable jokes that were stand-up jokes on tv five years ago are inevitably the they get into movies and tv shows yeah it's just gonna happen over time you can't you can't even put a joke out there and think it's always going to be your joke it'll eventually Mm -hmm. become like a joke that's like oh well everyone makes that joke Mm -hmm. it's like no that was a person's joke to begin with yeah well i mean um not to bring up louis ck because i know he died but um uh i'm kidding (laughs) he's alive i've seen him he has sad elephant eyes but um uh he's uh he had the thing like you know you can suck a bucket of dicks and mm-hmm. he, you know and now everybody's like man you can suck a bucket of dicks like that sucks a bucket of dicks and yeah i've seen i've actually seen that on other tv programs and movies people being like man you can suck a bucket of dicks and that was louis yeah and there's lots of things that are their sayings or their uh just like a, a a standard punchline that you'd use in a certain situation that somebody that was someone's joke originally yeah. like pat oswald has jokes like that that mm-hmm. are now just people just freely use them in stand up part of the vernacular yeah another another louis thing was he came up with white people problems that was a bit that he had yeah. and then now everybody's like there's like sure I'm, i think that there's like an like an instagram and a and a twitter that somebody else created being like i'm going to do white people problems right exactly <laughs> exactly that was one of his bits yeah it's kind of i mean it's partially the nature of it um and then partially it's bad taste and, yeah. or you know just a bad way of, of doing things so yeah. what are, you want to you want to go about it in a different way um like the the sitcom yeah i just i really want to make something that has a lot of heart to it the the scripts that i've read that have heart to them uh they really resonate with me and i want to make something that has a lot of heart but is really funny and like actually funny mm-hmm. and um i i feel like i could assemble a writing staff that would achieve 
everything that I want regarding that. Because you you know so many funny people from doing stand-up for so long. Yeah, I mean, even Dave Attell came to me and he's like, hey, if you sell a sitcom, he's like, he goes, especially the pilot, he goes, let me have a pass at it. He goes, well, just literally let me, he's like, I am... I mean, David Tell is like a joke savant. Yeah, no he, kidding. Yeah, you, there's no better person to say that to you. He's a magician, and I was like, Dave, you don't know how hard how hard I'm going to take you up on that. And yeah, uh, and he's, you know, he's like, yeah, I'm not a. He's like, I'm not a sitcom writer. I'm not a whatever. But he's like, I will pu- I will help you punch up whatever. And um, and I mean that if something has heart and it's really funny, mm-hmm. that's what you need. And and you also need the characters. You need you need people to really care about the characters because mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like you know like friends you really cared about all those characters Seinfeld you cared about all four of them even though they were kind of disgusting people sure. it's always sunny in Philadelphia you know they were literally all the worst and you cared about them yeah they're awesome and I feel like so many writers they just create characters that are based upon typical tropes yeah definitely and I think that you know there's a part of our uh, uh, there's a part of our comedic understanding that you need to f- you need to find people that fit into different tropes, but you can find a more unique person that fits that. Right. And uh, you know that fits that sort of archetype of a character, and um, you can you can write someone that's really special, and then choose someone who's special to play them. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm naive, or but or maybe I'm just new to all of it. But I'm like, I think we can do it better. <laughs> What was it like going into to working on the pilot the first time? Difficult? Um, I think that it was more. It, it's like anything. Working out, um, you know, writing, going, sitting down to write a joke. The idea of doing it was scarier than actually starting. To yeah, do it. yeah. And then once you start to do it, um, and I procrastinated by re- re- like reading every book that you can. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I mean there. But there's always help too. There's there's people that yeah, do yeah. this. That uh, I have a friend who she writes for a major CBS sitcom, and she's really good at this stuff. And she, you know, like I call her and ask her questions. And there there's just always help. But if if you're creative and you want to do something, just just take the leap and don't be afraid to suck at it until you're good at it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. You got to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I've I've spent years you know coming up with sitcom ideas and tinkering with them and then you know either finishing the script and sending it to people i've also i've had a lot of reps along the way where i'll write a treatment i'll write a sitcom i'll send it to them and because they actually have promised me that they have connections that they don't they read it and go oh i don't like this at all and yeah yeah when i signed with caa I sent scripts to my people and they're like do you have any scripts and i sent them the scripts and they're like these are great what's what? Yeah, that's pretty disappointing to find out. Yeah, that you know, people were afraid of How many years earlier did you write them? Um, I've been writing scripts for like 6 years. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I had a I had a manager that was a no person and then I switched to another manager that um I think he is he's retired now, but he was basically retiring when he took on clients. He took on a bunch of road dog clients that uh-huh. could essentially pepper his income with a few hundred dollars a month and he was doing nothing but telling us that he was doing stuff and i won't say his name even though i should but um even when i left him he was like you need to pay me for another year and that's our agreement and i was like that's not in the contract did you consider yourself a road dog at that point yeah yeah i mean i've i've been 
I've been doing comedy for 21 years now, and then I, um, I've been on the road for, I think, 15 of those years. <laughs> and so you were, you, you had, uh, you know, a somewhat normal progression through things you know getting on premium blend and getting a half hour last comic standing but it was kind of stretched out over a long time yeah if all of that stuff if all the stuff that i've I've done happened in my career in uh in a three four year span right i'd be michael che you know where people would be like he's the hottest but i also think that that's one of the reasons why i'm ready to do a sitcom right now is because I'm almost, I'm almost like Billy Gardell in that sense where yeah, it's like I've gone through the ringer. I've gone through ups and downs and like, you know, peaks and, and then almost quitting comedy. And um, I don't think that when I was in my mid to late 20s, I was ready to be in the spotlight. I think I would have imploded. Yeah. And now at this point, I think that I realized that most of that spotlight is bullshit and... um and I really want to do the work because I, I want to get more exposure. I want to be able to sell tickets to do stand up. Yeah. Um, I also want to, from a creative standpoint, not from a fame driven standpoint, I want to do those projects. And I think we were talking yesterday, like, like I, I used to want to do a sitcom, uh, you know, for fame. And then now I want to do a sitcom so that I can have a regular schedule and have a dog. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> like the, it's such a weird um, it's such a weird reason to want that big thing. But I think, you know, years and years of being on the road does put that in your head where you start thinking, what can I possibly do to have a more normal life? Because it's a tough life being on the road all those years. And I would love to still go out on the road, but on a schedule that is my choice. I would love to go out and do right. a six-week tour sure. every year and then be home the rest of the time or if I really needed to work on stand-up, go to, you know, go to New York and for a month and really jam on material at the cellar or something like something like that, or, you know, take a few dates in places that I, I need to run stuff. But it's always funny to me. Like I remember back in the day, um, Garth Brooks went out on tour and he was like, he did this thing where he did eight shows in a week and granted he's singing and you know, climbing a rope ladder with a headset microphone on. and doing I didn't know about the rope ladder. Oh, he climbs a rope ladder. It's, it's a pretty, <laughs> sounds pretty good. It's a showstopper. Okay. Um, uh, when he does friends in low places, he goes to a high place okay. with the rope ladder, uh, spoiler alert. But you know, people, people would be like, he sold, he, he's doing eight shows in a week. And I remember thinking that's every week. Like I remember right. he had to like go to some sort of like, a like a rehab, you know, like where you're not, you're not on drugs, but you're just going to go to a spa and chill out. Yeah. Yeah. From exhaustion. Yeah. Cause he's so exhausted. And I was like, that's every week for a comedian. All the road comedians are doing that every week for years on end. Sure. And without stopping. <laughs> so you, you said you got close to quitting. I've, I've quit a couple times. I've called my family and been like, I'm quitting. I'm not doing this anymore. And it's just been from exhaustion on the road. Yeah. And, my family now knows that the wait four days and I'm going to call and go, no, I'm not quitting. Yeah. Did you ever ha- come up with a plan for what you wanted to do? Yeah. I was like, I'm going to be a day trader. I, I went okay. To yeah. Yeah. I, I think about that too all the time. Yeah. Not, not necessarily day trader, but just like getting into financial stuff, just getting into anything to make money so that I can like just have a regular job and make money. Yeah. And I think that 
but I day trading is really hard and it requires yeah. a, a lot of luck and you can lose everything. Yeah, day trading is not uh, not yeah not a great uh, career. I don't think. No, I don't think that it's a good solution. And my dad, of all people, that in the beginning was always like, "You need to choose a stable career path. You need to be smart about this." When I called him and told him that I wanted to quit comedy and day trade. My dad was like, that is ridiculous. He's like, yeah. he's like, I have friends that work in finance. It's really hard. It's really up and down. And, uh, you know, he's like, not only is it arrogant that you think that you could just go into day trading yeah, and yeah, be successful, yeah. uh-huh. but he's like, it, he goes, you work in a career where you can choose when or when you get your raises and when you don't. It's not like you're waiting for a, a three to five percent raise every year from your boss. He goes, you can just take an extra gig and get a three percent raise. Oh yeah. And he goes, and then also you were you work in a career where, even though you're down in the dumps, like three days from now you could get a phone call that you have a you have an audition that could change your whole life to, where it would change your income from one level where your income would go up three thousand percent. Yeah, that's a crazy and, thing. And he goes, "There's no other field that you could you could do that in." But how many years were you in at that point when you're having this conversation? Um, that was about that was about six years ago when I had that serious. So conversation. like fifteen years. It was like fifteen years, and my dad was just like, "He's like, I believe in you. Don't give up." And he he's like, "Just do not give up." But at that point, I was doing I was doing at that year. I did 184 colleges in a year. And uh-huh. I made a decent amount of money, but I also didn't because, uh, you know, most of your money, you know, if you make two grand on a college, like half of it goes to the government because we get taxed higher. And it's mm-hmm. al- it's always really funny when people go like, well, entertainers, it's, you know, like, like entertainers and athletes get taxed higher just because of our job category. And uh, because people assume that we, we like things and then we also get to write a lot of things off. Yeah, well, you also are, you make a lot of money in a short amount of time and mm-hmm. you don't have job security long term. So you have to stretch money out and make it last, but you get taxed as if you were going to make that money every year. Uh huh. Yeah, it's 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 crazy. And um, but, you know, and then the, a lot of it goes to a American Airlines and Hertz rental car, sure. and, uh, you know, and then you got to pay agents and managers. And at the end of it, you know, I did one hundred and eighty four colleges. I think I made like four hundred thousand dollars, and I was left with like sixty grand. Really? And I was like, yeah, I was like, this really? Is, wow. I was like, this is stupid. And so, if anybody's looking to get into the college market, really, really press your college agents to get you a, a good price because it's. Um, I don't know if I should say his name, but there was this really big college comedian at one point. He goes, "This isn't gold. This is fool's gold." Because he goes, uh-huh. you're going to pay so much in taxes, so much to your agents, managers. He goes, everybody else is going to get paid, and then you're going to drag your body across the country, and you're going to be left with nothing. Wow. And it was it was like, yeah, so that market, and I still do colleges, but now I do them for, I do them for a pretty high rate. And I get people at the schools and um, even on the, you know, the agent level that go like, oh, that, that's pretty steep. And I'm like, well that's reparations for years of right, right. going my first college tour that I did I was um they were like you're going to be making $1000 a college and I did this like 50 city tour and I ended up 38 grand in debt cuz I I just like got credit card after credit card and um and then on that tour I wrote my comedy central half hour special mm-hmm. which paid me uh 15 grand 
And then, uh, so like I paid down like a little bit of that credit card debt. And you were just, that was just the expense of just your day-to-day living. Day-to-day living, buying flights. And I was, I was too stupid. I saw it all happening, but I was too sweet and earnest to call up my agents and go cancel the rest of the tour. You fucked me. Like you, you're making money on this and you knew that there was no way that I could be able to, um, make money off of this like you knew you just you knew and um but yeah i was i, I was just i i was like well you made a deal and you signed contracts and you gotta honor them and i could have canceled them a month do you out. think that's still happening to the most most people that are doing colleges i think that there there are a lot of people that that's happening too yeah but i also you know the starting point of doing colleges is usually around 1500 and they started me for last. Like they're like, let's make you a discount. Okay. Let's make you a deal so you can get your, get a lot of them. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, but I think that there are a lot of discount. There are a lot of agencies that, um, they call them middle buyers in the college market. Okay. And, um, they're kind of driving the prices down in the college market by talking people into being deals. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and the colleges are getting used to getting deals on people. So they're going, well, why would I pay five grand or 10 grand for somebody when I know that I can get somebody decent for 1500? But the, the argument that I'll make for that is that there are a ton of comedians that can't go to a university now and deliver a show that isn't going to make somebody blog or be utterly offended. Right. And so if you want to get a comedian that's going to go in and have a really great show, you got it. You're going to have to pay five to 10 grand. And like, so how about instead of having, uh, you know, if, if your budget allots for a series of 15 comedians, you should have seven, you know, like, like you should, you should have seven, double the price, have a better show at your college. Don't offend your, your base. Um, don't get in trouble with, with the Dean of the college and, pay comedians more of a fair rate instead of having that problem. <laughs> the complaint that I hear, you know, a lot from comedians doing colleges are isn't a lot of times not the money as much as it's just the setup and how bad the shows are. Yeah, I mean, I went and did a college one time. It was at a community college and uh there was just nobody there. There was nobody right. there from the activities board. It was the end of the semester. They don't they just didn't care anymore yeah and there was an envelope taped to the mic stand and i went that's and I, hilarious i read the thing and it said here's your check start the show when you want end the show when you want uh we went to a party there like we went to a party and there were like two to three hundred students there and so i just went up and i was like hey your activities board isn't here but uh, are you ready for a good show and i had a really good show and then i left and never heard from anyone it, that's funny it's crazy i'm gonna it? start running shows like that do it yeah i'm just gonna tape stuff to the yeah. microphone and leave yeah but, but then you on the other hand you you also have colleges that the activities board's awesome they get a lot of people there right. um you know they really care they give you a you know a sweatshirt when you leave so like i don't want to be down on colleges and and also you know you hear a lot about the politically correct stuff at colleges and um but I think that there are a lot of very reasonable people and reasonable students at colleges that mm-hmm. are, you know, they can look at a joke and realize where your heart is or, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about like regular humor, not stuff that's like egregious. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, then you also, you go to a college from time to time and 
it's really interesting because you, you know, like, like I have a lot of, um, I, I have long bits about sexuality and I'm, you know, mm. I'm very, I guess I'm very pro LGBTQ community. And if I start into those bits at the college campus, it's funny because you see, you see the students go into their pocket and they start videoing you. Really? And they're aiming at you like, just like, like I'm going to catch you. And it's almost, um, and I don't know if they're, if they're wanting justice for, um, you know, for the injustices that they felt in their life, but it's almost like a, a, like a 2019 sort of a sensibility of like, I'm going to get this on YouTube and I'm going to be the publisher. Like there's this, there's this, um, content we want, everybody wants content. They want something inflammatory. They want, you know, whatever. And, um, and then you can see them as they see my bit develop where they realize that I'm on, you know, I'm on the correct side of things and I'm actually speaking for them and, and, uh, on their behalf. And, um, and I'm an ally, you can see them like almost disappointedly put their camera away and then enjoy the bit. <laughs> yeah. No inflammatory <laughs> comment content at all. Yeah. But, and then afterwards, those are always the students that want to talk the longest and they want to take the most pictures. And so for comedians out there, that are like, we can't do college. It's, it's like you can, and the same people that you think are going to hate you are going to be so cool afterwards. And those are the ones that you're going to wish that you could go to dinner or like have coffee with, or, Mm -hmm. you know, talk longer, or, you know, they'll become your online followers and you want to actually have a a continued dialogue with them because they're cool as shit, you know? Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for doing it, man. Thank you so much for having me. For more information about our live shows, check out undergroundcomedydc.com.